We're coming to Daniel chapter 5, and our reading has a riddle. And it's quite a famous one, and in fact, there's even, it even gets written by a mysterious supernatural hand upon the wall of the palace where this sort of like orgy was going on. And it's where we get the, sa- the, the, the saying, the writing is on the wall. Uh, literally comes from this, uh, this story today. But I thought I'd better warm you up with a couple of riddles. So um, question number one, which month of the year has 28 days? All of them, gosh, eh? I gave you an easy one to get you started, okay? What is full of holes and still holds water? A sponge, there we go, okay. Now it's getting a bit more difficult. Cindy hadn't answered any of them yet, but we'll... uh... (laughs) What question can you never answer yes to? No. Are you asleep yet? <laughs> Cindy works late and then walks in and are you asleep yet? Well I was. <laughs> What's always in front of you and can't be seen? Um The future, who called that one out? It's always in front of you and it can't be seen. Okay, you guys can help Daniel out when it comes to the tricky bit. Just a, just a reminder of where we've been in chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar literally loses it, becomes like a beast, and God restores him when he, quote, raises his eyes to heaven. He looks to God. And he surrenders to the God of the people he took captive. By the way, that, that is one of the most remarkable descriptions of how God works in history. When people think they've gained power over the people of God, only to find the people of God bringing them to a place of surrender to the God whom they serve. And he surrenders to the God of the people he has taken captive, and he acknowledges God rules. God is king. He's the ultimate king, and I am not. And this is the emperor of pretty much the known world, stretching from Turkey to Arabia. You know, everyone else was still running around in animal skins at this time. It was the only place really worth conquering in in their view, certainly. But the other startling view is that, as Daniel told him, if God is king, I must repent and do justice. I must take care of the poor and the vulnerable. It's interesting, Jesus, when he came preaching, said, repent, the kingdom of God is here. If God is king, I must repent. Book, book of Daniel, Jesus comes, takes those themes, and makes it the, the punchline of his preaching. We saw that God's sovereignty, the way he rules, 
is not deterministic or fatalistic. And by the way, neither is prophecy. In other words, just because God tells the future doesn't mean that, that literally nothing else can happen and your choices don't matter. In fact, the way God rules, the way God speaks, creates a crossroads that demands a response in that moment. You must make a choice. It's not that you don't have a choice. It's that right there as he speaks, you are brought to a crossroads and you have to choose. And we find ourselves there again. And so we're not called to accept evil or oppression or injustice or suffering as a strange manifestation of the mysterious will of God. God is dealing with these things. We are called to repent, do what is right, be kind to the oppressed, as Nebuchadnezzar was told, precisely because our good God reigns. Okay. Of course God does as he pleases. But don't compare Nebuchadnezzar doing as he pleases or Belshazzar doing as he pleases with our good God doing as he pleases. Our good God. What is his good pleasure? Wow. Well, certainly includes bringing salvation to whosoever believes. And so we come to uh, Daniel chapter 5. And um, give you a little bit of a background. The, the chapter was regarded by critical scholars, and there's probably some, no matter how much historical evidence you provide, they'll still be grumpy, um, who said that this, this chapter is just complete fiction because the characters were absent from secular historical records. In other words, the Babylonians have their libraries, and there's all kinds of stuff there. And this, by the way, is called a... Um, a, a cuneiform, uh, it's, it's not a scroll, it's a cylinder, and it's got writing on, and that writing tells detailed stories, and there were many of these that have been discovered in modern-day Iraq and Iran, etc. And, and we actually read history from these, not me, um, but people who've got this. So this is an example of such a historical record that's actually in the British Museum. don't know what it's doing there. Um, and it's really interesting that this is one that shows that Daniel's record actually can now be reconciled with history. So, you know, often history and archaeology has to play catch-up with what we've got there. So, so what actually was going on? Where in chapter 4, we're there with Nebuchadnezzar, and suddenly we come to chapter 5, and it starts King Belshazzar. And, uh, and a lot's gone on between that. Nebuchadnezzar has been dead by the time this chapter starts for about 17 years. And then there was followed by a period of royal intrigue, instability, uh, that even included an assassination or two, until Nebuchadnezzar was succeeded by someone we think was his son-in-law. It's not exactly written out in the way we would like history to be recorded. Um, and his son-in-law was a man called Nabonidus, uh, who somehow, he was, he was, his mom seems to be the one who was connected to royalty very strongly. Um, and, uh, and his son was Belshazzar. And it appears that Nabonidus only made it to the throne because Belshazzar arranged the assassination of his competition inside the royal family. Lovely family dynamics. Um, <clears throat> yeah, 
as in any normal dysfunctional family, they, you know. And so Nabonidus, though, is one of the most remarkable, uh, there's, there's tons of historical record, actually, on him. He was like a reformer king, but he didn't like the gods of Babylon because he sort of like married in from the outside. His dad wasn't like full-on Babylonian. He was, he was nobility, married into the royal family, um, but he had his own favorite god, and that didn't make him popular in Babylon. So no problem, he goes and defeats Arabia and then goes to live there and builds a palace and, and his own version of Babylon by the desert. And... Uh, and so he spends his time living there, which conveniently for Belshazzar makes him the de facto king of Babylon itself. And so although he's, so Belshazzar isn't the son's son, he's the descendant through his mother uh, of King Nebuchadnezzar, but he's also the son of King Nabonidus, the real ruler of the Babylonian Empire. But because Nabonidus has had a grumpy fight with the priests and the establishment, he goes and moves to Arabia. And lo and behold, which nobody guessed, except Daniel knew all along, Belshazzar is effectively the king of Babylon for a period of more than 10 years. So it took history a little bit of time to catch up. So I just felt that was quite interesting, that uh, people, you know, confidently dismissed the Bible as myths and legend until they actually found the historical evidence, two and a half thousand years old, and they read it and they said, oh, okay, maybe Daniel knew a thing or two, which is really interesting because in the chapter he says to Daniel, when he offers Daniel, you know, all the rewards for interpreting the dream, I'll make you third highest. Now it makes sense because he was second highest. He was ruling under Nabonidus, so he couldn't do that. Any case, this de facto king messes up big time, as we shall see. The cat being away did not end well for this mouse. Okay, so let's go to <clears throat> Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them, and he drank lots of wine with them. The other thing that's really interesting is that the Medo-Persian Empire, under the generals of Cyrus, is literally invading Babylon at this time. The armies are besieging the city, and they are just so confident that their fortified walls will be fine, their fresh water coming from the river Euphrates will be great, their hanging gardens will be planted and provide them with food, that they're not even bothering to defend themselves. They, uh, they're just having this massive party. Belshazzar's drinking his wine. <clears throat> he gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, father, so it's just his ancestor really, had taken from the temples in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines. So this is wine, woman, all mixed in, <coughs> so that they might drink from them. They drink copiously. He brought in the gold tablets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, 
And so repeated, he's, the king himself, his nobles, his wives, his concubines drank from them. And as they drank, they praised the gods of gold, of silver, of bronze, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Wine, woman, and witchcraft, idolatry, all in that one space. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand. It's always good to have light if you're going to read something. Um, in the royal palace, the king watched the hand. So there's this disembodied hand that comes and starts writing on the wall. Enough to freak you out, especially if you had too much wine. <laughs> He's face turned pale. He was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners. It's pretty obvious at this stage he doesn't know much about Daniel. And it's very obvious when Daniel walks in, Daniel can't be really bothered with this man. He says to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made, interesting, third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face grew more pale, and his nobles were baffled. The queen, or probably the queen mother in this instance, she would have still been called queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet and said, may the king live forever, which was not granted. She said, don't be alarmed, don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, the sense of your father is, is, you know, our father Abraham, father, you know, it's not, it's not the immediate biological father. Your father appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding. Also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Now you know why I said you could help him. You've got all my riddles. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, notice he wasn't living somewhere far away. He was obviously there, nearby. And the king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles, my father the king brought from Judah. Interesting, he does not even know this guy who was, you know, so out of touch. I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought to me before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now, I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel answered the king, O king, may you live forever. 
No. You can keep your gifts for yourself. <laughs> Give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and the peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant, when his heart was hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory he was driven away from people and given the mind of a beast or an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is king or sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and sets them over anyone he wishes. Sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his descendant, his son, you've not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is what the inscription uh, that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. So, there's the riddle. It's, it's unlikely that, you know, it's so obvious to an Aramaic reader that they thought, which would have been a known language, it wasn't the language of the Babylonians, but it would have been a known language. They thought it must have been written in code. Must have been written backwards, which would have been from left to right. Or something that would have, you know, or written in a cube. Or, or something that would have made it more mysterious. Because it, it's sort of like, you know, you know, dollar a dime and half a pence. It's a, that, that's what the wording sort of like gives you. It's, they were well-known words of units of measurement. Here's what these words mean. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Whoop, I've gone ahead of myself. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck. He was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But that very night... Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. 
So this is the third time in the book of Daniel that a pagan king receives a supernatural communication from God that they cannot interpret, and then, through different circumstances, come to look to Daniel to interpret the message. Now, this is often how God works, but we mustn't make Daniel into like this hero or whatever it is. As the book continues, Daniel himself will have prophetic encounters with dreams and visions that he's scared of and that he doesn't understand and that he finds himself saying, oh, what are you saying to me? So, um, but the details of the story, I'm not going to go through them again. Daniel immediately reads the writing. It's Aramaic. It's a language he knows. It's actually the language of the text. And presumably most of the people there would have been able to read it. The, the difficult thing is not what the words were. It's what the words meant. And why would they come in such a dramatic way? Literally a disembodied hand starts writing on the wall in front of you. So if you take a look at the screen, and uh, I learned this week that I shouldn't, you know, one nice way to tell people that you've got a problem is to explain that you're confused or puzzled. So I'm puzzled, and then what do you see? Help me. Two rocks. Pound. So if you use imperial measurement, that would be two stone, one pound, half a pint. So you would sort of like, now what would that mean? It, 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 was, it was something like this. It was like looking at a weight. or look, So these were weights, but they were also units of currency. So a shekel we know. And a parson is a parsed shekel, so it's cut in half, so that you break it up. And, and so, mene was the larger unit. So, in the old imperial system, you'd have a stone, then you'd have a pound, then you'd have an ounce or something like that. And so, having something would mean two stone, one pound, and half pint, which then you look at, you go, units of weight... Mene, mene, that, that was the, the larger units of measurement and also the larger units of currency because if you had silver, so 30 shekels of silver were different to 30 talents of gold, but they would still weigh the same, but their value would be different because it's the unit of measurement. So when, and, and mostly they, didn't tra they traded in silver, that was the, the main currency. So these would have been weights, so they get... Two, and then one, and then half. And they're puzzling, like, what's two, one, and half? And then why is it weight or currency? So it was a little bit as though the hand on the wall was writing a recipe. You know, you need 300 grams of this, and you need and so much water, and so much milk, and so much cream, and whatever. And it's like you're watching a recipe being written supernaturally on the wall. Or, if it's currency, you're watching a bookkeeper doing his accounts. But why? What does it mean? Now, Daniel's very clever because he does not interpret the riddle. 
before he delivers its meaning. He looks at it, he understands its meaning, and he then goes into the, as it were, the address that he makes to the king. He says, you can keep your stuff. This is what you have done wrong. So what we're seeing here, it's, a, it's like a court case. And firstly, there's the evidence that is led. Then there will be and the charges that are laid. Then there will be the verdict, and finally the sentence. Daniel understands that God has written out the sentence against Belshazzar. But he doesn't go to the sentence first. He gets there last. But he must lay out the charges before he speaks God's verdict, before He makes sense of the sentence. So that's what we will do this morning. We're going to look very quickly at the charge sheet. The first thing is Belshazzar abuses his power and he defiles the sacred temple object. Belshazzar at this point is the epitome of of a tyrant. His nation is in absolute crisis, and he brings his closest cronies around them, all thousand of the psychophants that were keeping him in power, and they have this party. Now, the party would have, they call in the concubines, they call in the wives. This was not a dignified function They were drinking themselves into oblivion, feasting in luxury. As I said earlier, this is wine, woman, and witchcraft because they start praising all these different kinds of gods. And the setting is that when his binge drinking is not filling the hole inside of himself, He ups the ante, takes an even bigger risk, and goes even further, and he calls for the sacred silver and gold goblets that were taken from Yahweh's temple. Now, what you may not know is that Babylon had a a strict protocol for dealing with the religious artifacts of the nations they conquered And in fact, if any of their cities after a while were in trouble, most of those cities would have their own favorite deity. And that deity would be represented in a temple by an idol. And so Babylon had a place where they promised the people that they had conquered that we will keep your God safe. So that was part of actually the duty of Babylon. And so, for example, when Cyrus was invading, those same records show how the gods were brought in from all the towns and villages and cities for safekeeping and honoring in the secure place so that their gods didn't get stolen. But instead of doing what his own rules said he should do, He calls for the silver and gold that comes from the temple of Yahweh. Why Yahweh? And there in that place of excess, they use it to get even more drunk. The Babylonians thought they held the gods in their hands. 
that these gods needed them, that these gods needed their protection. Part of the sentence will be, you do not realize and honor the God who holds your life in his hands. So as the binge drinking gives way to bravado, you know, the Bible does not condemn wine or alcohol out of hand. Jesus turned water into wine, probably most famously, but it does repeatedly judge addiction and drunkenness and binge drinking as a sin and a foolishness you need to walk away from. Sadly, I mean, I was a teetotaler for about 25 years because I came from a space where binge drinking was normal. And the only way you could have a testimony in that space was to actually not touch the stuff at all. So that was for the sake of conscience and for the sake of witness. Um, I actually do have a glass of wine now, but I still remember the warning. So we don't go there. But Belshazzar, in the charge sheet, he abuses his power. He neglects his place of trust, even in the rules of his own kingdom, and defiles the sacred temple objects of Yahweh. Belshazzar also despises the legacy of God's mercy to his ancestor. Daniel takes him back to this well-known story of God's dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. How Nebuchadnezzar, in his you know, military victories and then his great building uh, project and, and, and you know, Babylon with its towers and its fortifications and its gardens, and he walks out and he thinks, isn't this for my glory? And he's literally stripped of everything except breath. But even his normal food gives way to grass. His clothes give way to the dew of heaven. And, and he lives like an animal, the archetypal beast. And the charge against Belshazzar is, you knew this. You knew this. This didn't happen somewhere in the far corners of Babylon. This happened in the center of power. you part of the royal family. Everyone ha knows what's happened to your grandfather. And you knew this. You knew the edict, but you didn't even know Daniel, <laughs> who guided him through that because you'd literally despised God's legacy of mercy to your family. You know, all of us have got Family stories, and some of those are real pain. And Nebuchadnezzar was by no means a role model for godliness. But there was a mercy in his life. There was an action of God that turned him from who he was into a being who could look at heaven and say, you reign. I belong to you. You're in charge, not me. 
Belshazzar looks at that mercy, and whatever he thought about it, he chose to ignore it. Daniel says, you, desi- you despised it. You have not humbled yourself, verse 22, even though you knew it. You know, what is it that we know? Even in our family testimony that we need to honor. You've not humbled yourself. You knew it. And ultimately, he defies the Lord of heaven, to use the language of Daniel. People of Babylon didn't know who Yahweh was, but they knew he was the God or the Lord or the King of heaven. Several titles used throughout the book. The charges you have set yourself up. You knew, but you did not humble yourself. Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have deliberately provoked this confrontation. And so while this conversation is going on, the armies of Cyrus, the Medo-Persian Empire, are literally besieging the city. The people in the city, they think they're impregnable. As I said, there's the walls, there's the fruitful gardens, there's the water that is uh, in a constant supply. They were not worried. They were so casual, so indifferent, they thought it was time to party One legend, and it's a little bit difficult to work it out, the detail, is that Cyrus's army cleverly dammed up and diverted the river Euphrates because the river was flowing in under the city walls so that the wall could, and then when the water level dropped just enough in the dark of night, they followed the river into the city. And the place, there was no sacking, there was no destruction, there was no nothing. There was literally, they went straight after the king, got rid of him, and most of the people thought, thank goodness, the tyrant is gone. Now, that could be propaganda. Um, you know, propaganda and fake news is not, that's not from the Bible, but, you know, that's the background. So, who knows what actually happened, but what we do know is they were so confident they were parting on the night of their destruction. You know, what was happening in the physical realm of history was simply a mirror of Belshazzar's presumption and arrogance towards God. And so you've got the charge sheet, and this is the verdict. You did not honor the God who holds you in his hands. So here's the sentence. Man here, man here, tackle, pass in. God numbered your days. Tonight, they end. Tickle, you've been weighed and you're lacking. You literally don't have what it takes to pass this test. Perez, 
you are parsed, you are halved. Your kingdom's going to be shared between what was actually quite a united empire, the Medes and the Persians. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. So the judge, through Daniel, delivers the sentence. That's what the riddle means. This is the sentence. And why? Because you thought you could hold God in your hands. You could look after them. You could do with as you please towards them. Guys, this is sobering stuff. It's judgment. It's like red in tooth and claw judgment. We have this ambivalent relationship with judgment. We demand it and we don't want it at the same time. <laughs> We're so angry when God doesn't deal with the tyrants. And yet we swallow hard when we see him do it. And we try and explain why it shouldn't be so, you know, exacting. And that God shouldn't be judgmental. And we like to decide, like the people who used to carve the gods in their little images of wood or gold, what God should look like. It's not our place to determine who God is and what he should look like. You know, when I look at that line, I just, just look at that line. He holds your life. God holds your life. He holds all your ways. God is king. That's the theme of the book of Daniel. Explore, we're all living on borrowed time. We've all been given life that is held in God's hands. During communion, we remembered that God gave his life for us. He suffered for us. Incredible mercy. But we dare not forget that not just has God given his life for us, he's given our lives to us. I cannot be arrogant. I cannot be presumptuous. I dare not set myself up against God and think I know better. So don't mistake the patience of God for his absence. You know, Belshazzar lived as king, ruled effectively as the king of Babylon for longer than any South African president has been president in South Africa ever. Not just of democracy. He had more time to cause chaos, and he did. And he, and he broke what was once a strong empire so that it was defenseless when its enemies came against it. 
he seemed to be getting away with what he was doing. Causing damage, chaos, when intelligent, strategic, and creative leadership was desperately needed. Guys, we mustn't be ambiguous towards the justice of God. We need to pray for it. We need to welcome it. We need to live in the light of the fact that God is truly a just judge. And he will balance the books. He will hold me to account. I cannot live as if I gave myself life and I have the right to do as I choose. And contrary to a half a dozen, you know, popular songs that insist, it's my life. Yes, it is, but it's God's gift. And he holds it in his hands and he's going to hold us to account. So don't confuse God's patience with his absence. God is not missing in action. There must have been so many people wondering how long, how long. Even the faithful servants of God like Daniel must have wondered how long. We know that during Belshazzar's reign, he set himself to pray, asking that very question. That comes a little bit later in the book. <laughs> How long? Don't confuse God's patience with God's absence. God has not given up the project of his kingdom on the earth or his justice among us. And so I dare not despise his mercy. If I want the justice of God to happen on the earth, I must embrace the mercy of God and honor that in my story. And wherever there has been the grace and mercy of God, that's what I need to champion, and that's what I need to run after. And that's what Belshazzar forgot. He forgot to live in the light of the mercy God had shown. I don't think there's a greater mercy. When I was thinking, when do we do communion? I knew we do it before today because I don't think there's a greater mercy than God has shown. That his only son should offer himself, his body and blood for us. I dare not live as though God has not acted on my behalf. The challenge for me is not just to live a good life. It's to lean into God's mercy shown to me through the person of Jesus. And I want to ask you, are you doing that? You know, it's easy to point fingers two and a half thousand years ago at Belshazzar. The question is, these things that were going on, am I living in the light of their reality? Please, don't ignore the God who holds your life in his hands. Don't ignore the God who gave his life so that your life might be saved. Let's pray together.
as I was preparing, I, I realized that there is a mercy in this message. And the mercy is that it's recorded. That we can take warning. And that we can turn to the God who holds us in his hands. There's great mercy. So maybe this morning, you're needing to lean into the grace and the mercy of God. The good news is I can tell you it's abundant. It's more than enough. It's available. And it's found in Jesus. It's abundant. It's available. It's more than enough. And you will find this mercy in Jesus.